Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Today we have a really fantastic guest that I'm so excited to talk about. She has a lot of things going on. She's just released a book that I'm excited to read one day. Hopefully I get a signed copy, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I could squeeze that Definitely. out. Definitely. Um, yes. Joelle, how, do you, how are we going to say your last name? We just talked about this. I say Prevo. Prevo. Yeah. We're going to go with that. All right, Prevo, Joel Prevo. <laughs> um, welcome to To Nobody's. We're really excited to have you. Um, for for folks who are listening, Joel and I got connected by a, a person who was actually on our show, um, Dr. Scarlett Cooper. And Joel, I'm sure you can attest to Scarlett is just a beautiful human being. So I'm excited to talk yeah. to you because if you're linked to her and you guys are great friends, I'm sure this conversation is going to go wonderful. So welcome to To Nobody's. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And yes, Scarlett is awesome. Uh, not only are we good friends, we've been best friends for about 23 wow. years, actually. We were just talking a couple hours ago and we're like, wow, it's been 23 so years. So just getting so. to know each other, hey? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 23 years, best friend <laughs> totally. for 23 years. That's a significant yeah. amount of time. Yeah, 1998, grade six. Yeah. <laughs> So was and she, and uh, this is probably poor form for a podcast show, but before the show we were talking and Joelle used to meet a punk band. So was Scarlett in this punk band with you? <laughs> no, and it was more pop punk emo. I don't want to sound okay, right. more hardcore than I am. So uh, I'll be honest there. It was, you know, I'm a counselor. I like talking about emotions. It was in an emo band. So you could see where <laughs> just been drawn to stuff like that. But Scarlett was not in the band, but she was front row at a lot of shows, <laughs> dancing and singing along. And it was the best to see someone in the crowd who knew the words to our songs. And that was usually only her. So number one oh, fan. Yeah. Has, uh, has her sort of approach to health rubbed off on you in any way? It has extremely, actually. She has been an amazing naturopath uh, and resource for me. Uh, not only do I just get to text her when I'm like out buying supplements and say, hey, which brand's the best? But on a larger scale, um, I have an autoimmune disease, mm. ulcerative colitis. And I've done some work with uh, that community with regards to mental health and uh, maintaining mental health while managing chronic illness. And uh at the beginning of my ulcerative colitis journey, uh, I was getting quite sick quite often. And Scarlett suggested to me this book called Against All Grain. Mm. And the author has ulcerative colitis and she changed her diet to a paleo diet. And she went into remission, went off medication, didn't need surgery. And so when I was getting kind of sicker and sicker over the years, she told me about this. I changed my diet that day. And uh, yeah, I've been feeling so much better since. That was a huge life changer. So I owe her so much for that knowledge that she passed on to me and uh, just all her help through the years. It's been really great. So yeah, it's awesome to have a naturopath doctor on call as Pesh probably Oh, I <laughs> actually contact Scarlett many times when I need a second opinion. I mean, I'm married to one, so I, I have to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> I know that probably did come off well. Great. She's not going to listen to this one. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, no, she's uh, she's fantastic. Um, I, she, we we had a great conversation about children's nutrition, and she offered a lot of wisdom on that. So, yeah, awesome. She's very wise, wise beyond yes. her years. Has been ever since I've yeah, known her. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're where are you in BC exactly? I'm in uh, Surrey, in South Surrey and Ocean Park. And so are yeah. you, are you affected, you're probably not affected by these floods going on right now, hey? No, I am extremely fortunate not to be. Um, I know a couple people who are closer to them, not, not been displaced, but yeah, it is really, really an intense time in British Columbia right now. So definitely sending a lot of good energy and, uh, yeah, gonna actually look into some ways I can maybe help. I know the school that I work at, we were talking about that today, mm. just ways we can either just raise money or, or do something to, to give back to the people there who it's just really, yeah, I can't imagine what they're going through. I uh, I heard a story about, and I'm sure there's many of these, but I heard a story of this couple, I think they were on CBC, uh, and they were just talking about how they saw their home washed away there in Merritt, B.C., and, you know, there are many stories like that. And they're just saying, you know, we've been through, we went through the fires this summer, right? Because Merritt and that mm-hmm. whole area was, was experienced that much of, much of Southern BC. And then obviously COVID. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder what you as, you know, done your, you, first of all, you, you're a counselor, you're an author now, you're a teacher, mm-hmm. you're a biologist. I want to get into all those things. But when you, <laughs> when you see the compounding of all these things do you feel like we're mm-hmm. we must people we've already acknowledged that we're in some sort of mental health crisis but what are you, what's your feeling of mm-hmm. like how do we come out of this is this a significant mental health crisis that we're we're really going to be facing yeah i think there's a, a lot of things kind of cr- that are creating this current mental health crisis i think there's so many aspects to it and it's you know our our culture the stigma is lowering access to mental health and people talking about it. So I think a lot of things are becoming more diagnosed and just more at the forefront. It's being talked about now. So I think maybe there there were a lot of mental health issues before that maybe were just kind of being swept mm-hmm. under the rug. So I think that's a really big piece of it, just our, our culture, our society changing. But yeah, and then we're faced with all of these external things out of our control, pandemics. We had record high temperatures in mm-hmm. British Columbia this year, just really you know, really catastrophic events, the floods now. Uh, Yeah, so it just makes what was already a difficult life even harder. And, you know, I I talk to clients and I, I see a lot of trends and the things that stress people out, like living in a very capitalistic society, such a, a, a value placed on productivity, mm. you know, people just really struggling to get by. It's very expensive to live mm. in British Columbia and Vancouver and people are feeling that and it affects their mental health. And yeah, it's, it's definitely very sad to see. And uh, yeah, so all us counselors are, are doing what we can and there are things out of our control. There are things within our control. And so just doing the best we can to keep ourselves mentally healthy through these really tough times. I, I, I really wish that in our publicly funded system that, and I don't know if there is a province in the country that covers, um, whether it be registered psychologists or, or counselors, 
but I think it's such a necessary mm-hmm. thing. I mean, I, I see therapists both for couples counseling and individual, and it's saved me in many ways. And, and I just think so yeah. many people, it's unfortunate that those who have the means can really only access that kind of therapy. Um, you know, thankfully yeah. folks have private insurance, but unless you have that kind of coverage and it still doesn't cover mm-hmm. everything necessarily, um, it would be really nice to yeah. kind of see that sort of universal care. Definitely. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, as, as counselors too, we, it's really tough because we don't want to have that barrier to our services. Mm-hmm. Most of us, if not all, um, don't, can't speak for everybody, but at least for myself, I didn't get into this to make money. Mm-hmm. I wanted to help people, you know, and, and so a lot of us do have some pro bono clients, sliding scale clients, but it's still a financial burden to, to seek help long term. Right. And yeah, it's unfortunate that people who really need it are often the ones who can't access it. And I think it's the way it's going. It seems like it's maybe going to get there one day, but too bad we're not there yet. Because as we mentioned, there's, there's so many things happening right now that whether people are directly or indirectly affected by things like the pandemic or the floods or the high temperatures, it just makes whatever stressors people had even worse. I think it just creates more, more, yeah, (laughs) just more of what was already happening to them, just a lot more weight on people's shoulders. So can you take us from that journey? So grade six, uh, Joelle and Scarlett hanging out, trading (laughs) uh, probably gushers for like pudding pops or something at like lunchtime. to now so like what's that journey look like how did how did this become sure. something of of interest to you and and um how did you pursue that yeah so it's been a journey and uh i was definitely eating gushers <laughs> and uh doing things like drinking milk uh scarlet was not no, her uh, family's <laughs> already been was very extremely healthy um yeah so like she can tell you a bit lunch? more about her <laughs> Yeah, I think probably even healthier than that. All organic before organic was even really a thing people knew about. um, Because this is what, yeah, 23 years ago. Uh, But yeah, I was there, you know, drinking my Coca Cola every day. And, uh, (laughs) and so I went to uh, a high school that I actually currently work Mm -hmm. at. Uh, and is a K to 12. So I went there grade six to grade 12. Before that, I lived in Europe. I lived in Holland um, and I went to an American school there uh, and we moved back. I did grade six to grade 12 here in the lower mainland. And then I went to University of Victoria and I loved animals. So I was like, I'm going to go into biology and, and see what happens. thought maybe vet school, but wasn't quite sure. And I did my degree there. Took me a while. Uh, I was very busy socializing and I was captain of the synchronized swimming team at UVic as well. So I had a lot of other responsibilities. So I spent six years getting my bachelor's and uh, right kind of at the 11th hour, I was like, man, what am I going to do with this degree? Because I'd seen mm. already, I had the luxury of seeing some of my friends graduate already and they, they were having a really tough time finding jobs that had to do with their degrees. And so I tried to plan ahead a little bit and I started volunteering at the aquarium uh, on Vancouver Island up in Sydney. Uh, At the time, it was called the Shaw Ocean Discovery Centre. And I think now it's called the Shaw Centre for the Salish Sea, (laughs) which is a huge tongue twister. Uh, So I I volunteered there and I 
through there, I, I gained enough knowledge. I was able to land an internship at the Vancouver Aquarium. Mm-hmm. So I moved back to the mainland and I, I did a internship working as a, it's called a, an aquarist, which is an aquarium biologist. And I worked uh, in the tropical fish department. Mm-hmm. So I took care of tropical saltwater and tropical freshwater fish. So ocean fish, African lake fish, Amazon fish, all those things. Uh, so yeah, that was really great. And I had various other volunteer and paid jobs at the aquarium. I did sleepovers, did a bit in BC waters and the Arctic sections. And then finally I got hired full time as a tropical saltwater fish biologist. And I did that for a couple of years and on and off throughout that time too, I was working for fisheries and oceans, Canada Mm -hmm. up in West Vancouver at one of their sites at a, for a genetics lab. And, uh, I did genetics with trout and salmon. So I was doing a lot of fish care, a lot of fish culture work, breeding fish, feeding fish, cleaning them, everything. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really great, but you know, I, I realized that wasn't really a super sustainable career long-term. I thought at the time it would be what I would do forever. It was my dream to work at the aquarium, but as with all jobs, there are some parts you really love and some parts you don't really love and the scales got tipped and one of the things is actually one of my coworkers had a lot of mental health issues and she was quite difficult to work with and uh yeah some people would would maybe say even a bit of a bully sometimes and and I I kind of found myself quite fascinated by her behavior mm. you know just this this person who was one day one way and the other day another day or another way and and that was kind of what piqued my psychology interest a little bit. I'd taken some psychology in university. I had a minor in it, but I, I'd never given it too much thought. And I was like, I feel like I could maybe help people like this. Like I found myself having compassion for her, even though she was pretty mean to me sometimes and, and quite moody. Mm-hmm. But I was like, there's something underneath here. And and so um, I'd thought about that and I wanted to leave the aquarium and my mom always said I'd be a good teacher, so I went to UBC and I, I got a teaching degree. And during that time, I volunteered at the Vancouver Crisis Center. And I took uh, calls like from 1-800-SUICIDE and 310 Mental Health. Um, and that was really amazing experience. I loved the training. I loved taking the calls, helping people on the phones and on the chats. And that really solidified um, through that one year getting the teaching degree that I was like, you know what? I think I, I want to go get my master's in counseling. So I'd applied to start just quite soon after my education degree ended. Um, I needed to take a couple online courses. So I was going to spend four months doing that and then start my master's in January. But I got in a really bad car accident mm. and I actually fractured my neck in a car accident. Oh my goodness. So I was, I was out of commission for a while. Um, had my naturopathic doctor friend helping me, of course, (laughs) um, was in a neck brace for a while and just couldn't do much of anything, but, uh, made an almost full recovery, um, took a while. So I started my master's a bit later than I would have liked to, but got some good time off and, uh, yeah. And then I did that and, uh, I did a bit of TOCing teacher on call substitute teacher. So I did that in North Van and West Van for a little bit too. So I used my teaching degree um, a little bit there. And then, yeah, after my counseling degree, I lined up a job working full time at my old high school. Hmm. So I moved from downtown Vancouver, where I was living for seven years, um, 
and moved back to the suburbs. And here I am. I'm still working one day a week at the school. Uh, and I started my private practice about a year and a half, two years ago. And that's kind of what I'm up to now. Holy, what a journey. So, yep. I mean, almost uh, <laughs> like what a way to find out if sort of the mental health field is for you by working at a crisis center in Vancouver. I can't imagine some of the phone calls mm-hmm. that, that you would have gotten, A, and then B, to be able to sort of deal with that um, and process it in a healthy way every day. That must have been something else. And then also your journey mm-hmm. after your car accident, so the recovery – how long did that take? I imagine that there was some dark days there. Um, maybe just kind of walk us through that recovery and your mental health through that aspect as well. Sure. That's a great question. You know, I have never really actually reflected on my mental health through that period. Um, I'm I'm a pretty organized, focused, goal-driven person. So I think I was just saw it as, as a hurdle to get over. Mm-hmm. It was definitely frustrating to put off school. And I remember being on the phone with them and I'd been accepted and I was crying on the phone with the admissions lady and she was so nice. And she said, I've been through a car accident too. Don't worry about it. We'll get you in the next intake, which unfortunately there's only a January and a September intake. So it was an eight month wait, but they were really nice about it. And yeah, I was lucky enough to have financial support for my family. So I was able to not be super stressed. Um, I had an occupational therapist who helped me with some stuff. It was hard though. I mean, I lived alone. Um, I wasn't dating anyone at the time, so it was just me and my cat. Mm. So, you know, do things like walk to the grocery store wearing my neck brace and carry my groceries home. And, you know, you don't really realize how much you move your neck until you can't, and you can't look both ways when you cross the street and those things. But yeah, I think I, I, kept my spirits pretty high. I had a a friend's wedding that I was helping with. And so that was cool. I still, you know, there's pictures of me going wedding dress shopping, wearing the neck brace at the engagement party, wearing the neck brace. (laughs) It was just my, my accessory of the fall that year. And yeah, it was really great to have such an awesome support system of friends, I think. And that's something that I encourage my clients to have as well. I think these days we can feel connected because of all the social media and all those things but actually when it comes down to it you know we we feel like maybe we're lonely so the fact that I had some really great friendships that I'd cultivated over the years I think really helped me through that and yeah I think I I was just trying to have a good time I was like you know what I got a little bit of a break I watched a lot of makeup tutorials on YouTube and <laughs> dreamed about when I could go outside again, not in neck brace. Yeah, it was it was not it was not too bad actually. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, it's an interesting comment you make about social media and about how you maybe feel connected, but really, in some ways, we're more mm-hmm. alone than we ever have been. Um, and I'm sort of jumping all over the place here, but um, you work with high school students, and. Um, yeah. Some of the stuff I've read has shown that there are increasing levels of depression in high school students. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people point to social media being the cause of that, social media being the cause of that. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like for girls and boys, it, it's a little bit different. But for girls, you know, there's all these expectations that they see on social media. And, um, and also there's this thing where um, 
you can never really tune out of it. And that's what these companies want. They're developing these social media apps, right? Like they never, so like their currency is attention and um, their greatest enemy is, is when you sleep. And so they want you to be awake and looking at their apps at midnight and whatever it is. And so they make it desirable for you to be on there. And from what I've read, and I don't know if this is true or not, but from what I've read, um, when it comes to boys, they're much more likely to kind of deal with their issues in a physical manner, meaning that if you don't agree with somebody at your high school, um, you might walk up and just hit them or have some kind of confrontation. With girls, it's a much more... Um, it's a much more, uh, it's less physical and maybe a, a more emotional. I mean, that they might, you know, um, mm-hmm. might target social circles or things like that. So social media, this kind of thing that, that um, you can never unplug from, where you can maybe use that sort of form of uh, bullying that's available to girls 24-7, it can really impact their sort of mental health. So that's a long-winded way of saying, have you noticed, or in, in your work with high school students, do you notice these kinds of trends, maybe increasing rates of depression, and, and do you feel that maybe it's linked to to, to uh, social media use? Yeah, great question. So that was that's something that we do talk about at the school. And I mean, I haven't been a high school counselor for very long. This is my third year, so I can't speak too much as far as trends, but um, I definitely think that there are a lot of mental health issues in the schools and. You know, I think there is this false sense of community that takes place with social media and there's just no replacement for the real deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about other things, social emotional learning groups that I'm part of and professional development events that I go to. Kids are not attaching to their families anymore. They're attaching to their peers And so attachment style is such a huge aspect to how we then attach in our relationships as adults. And so how we form our attachments when we're younger is just such an important thing. And we're finding more and more that, yeah, these these students are are attaching and these young people are attaching to their peers rather than to their family. And are those healthy relationships? Are those people to be looking up to who are, you know, their kids? what kind of role models are those? And so not saying that they're, they're bad in any way, but it's, you know, having your adult role models who have the wisdom and who are teaching you about life um, is just so important. And I think to your point, exactly the 24 seven contact is they have no break now. Like when I was at school, it was, you go to school and then you go home and you don't talk to your classmates all evening. Mm -hmm you're kind of stuck with your family or you do whatever sports and you have a break and you sleep at night and you're, you have a break. And now, like you said, they don't have that. And so it's this constant thing. So if things are not going well socially, they're not going well 24 hours a day. They don't get a break from that. If someone's being bullied, like you said online, yeah, there's, there's no way to escape. And so yeah, I think that is definitely a big piece of it. Um, what we can do about that, geez, I mean, who knows, right? It's it's really tough because it is so addicting and it, it does touch on some of our human needs for connection and for just distraction and for entertainment. And so it's really tough to kind of butt up against but I have a lot of kids coming to me and even some of my adult clients in private practice that say 
they want to use social media less, but they just, they don't feel like they can because then they just miss out on socializing. What do you, so, and yeah. No, go ahead, Joel. Oh, I was just, <laughs> one of the things you said about the, the difference between some male and female taxes, and to generalize for sure, it just reminded me of this um, funny Louis C.K. quote where he, because I think he has two daughters, um, and he says, yeah, boys will destroy your house, but girls will destroy your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, and, um, I base that on a book written by a guy named Jonathan Haidt called The Calling of the American Mind, and they talk about that in that book and you know, th th that's the extent of the research I've done on it. So I'm not saying it's true or not, but that's sort of the argument that they make. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, it's a, <laughs> um, it, it's a good point from uh, Louis C.K. Yeah, I think, and there's, you know, whether it's gendered or, or not, there's just, there are different ways of, of people hurting each other. And I think social media has just, and the internet in general, right, has just given yet another way to do that. Um, how do you, Joelle, how, what would you, what do you suggest to parents who, I don't know, whether they didn't prioritize it early on with their kids in terms of that attachment-based parenting um, and building that trust and that sort of thing, how do you counsel parents to maybe build that relationship so that, you know, mm -hmm. there is a, maybe a little bit of a pivot that happens because that's the, that's the thing. And I don't know, Kyle, uh, what you're thinking with your, with your kids, but that runs through my mind all the time is that I want my daughter to hopefully come to me and my wife first. And, and I think about that, um, you know, building that trust early on, you know, all the things that I can do so that she, she feels safe and that, you know, she knows that we're not going to be judging her and that, um, we have truthful, honest conversations with her so that we're not misleading her, that she feels like she has to go to her friends. All the different tactics that we can think of, we're trying to employ them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hopefully that, that'll, that'll pan out so that when she's in those really difficult situations that she turns to us first. That's, that's really my goal. But what, what would mm -hmm. you tell parents who, you know, that they don't have the luxury of necessarily going back, of course, but how do they maybe make inroads in that way? Yeah, that's so I was actually talking to a, a client who's a parent um, this past week about something similar. And I think if sometimes we have these wake up calls to our relationships of like, oh, my gosh, this is not what I want. Like I, I see either behavior myself or, or my child that I want to change. And so I think something you mentioned there, trust so huge and I tell my clients all the time, the only thing that can build trust is time and consistency. And so it can start with changing your own behavior and probably talking to a therapist about what that means specifically for people, because it's going to be all sorts of things that cause a, a breach in trust. Um, but building that over time and being patient, you're not going to see results right away, probably. But being that consistently trustworthy person for the child being someone they can talk to being open putting your own stuff aside trying not to be too judgmental mm -hmm. trying not to be too preachy all of these things and yeah it's it's really hard it's hard to be consistent we're all human we have things that come up we sometimes have had a bad day or we're low on patience or we're hungry or we just we don't agree with what they're feeling or saying or thinking or doing so, 
yeah, it can be really tough, but I think that just that time and consistency will create change eventually. But yeah, it's, it can definitely be a journey. Well, and then your fears creep up up on it, right? Like how do you probably feel the same way? Like you you really want to trust your child in the process, but you know, these fears of like something's going to happen to them or your own experiences kind of dictate how you project on your child. Right. And and I always have to catch myself. So it, it, you're right. It, it is very hard to to be consistent throughout that time. So you, hopefully your kids are resilient enough so that even if you're inconsistent, they can kind of, um, you know, they can kind of navigate through that. But that's a really good point about trust and consistency. But it's hard when, you know, when fear creeps up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think trusting your own parenting too, that like they're going to, have situations where they have you know choices to make and it's being like yeah have I done my job and invested and and created Mm. someone who can make good decisions because we're not going to be able to make it for them uh another thing I tell my clients all the time if we could control other people I'd be out of a job (laughs) for sure (laughs) yeah that's the hardest part of being a parent I think is you never know like there are no instant results to what you're doing and there's no, you know, some of the consequences you might not see for a long time or, you know, some of the benefits you might not see for a long time. And mm-hmm. so you don't, it's hard to know if you're on the right road or not. And it's hard to know if you're making the right decisions and, and communicating effectively with, mm-hmm. with your child or, or even your partner. I mean, that's the, like, that's sort of the craziest mm-hmm. thing is like the shift in your relationship with your partner when you have kids, like we communicate totally differently. And, you know, half the time we, mm-hmm. you know, are, are um, overtired and we're, we're frustrated or we're hungry because we haven't eaten because we have to take care of the kids and all that stuff. Um, you just wrote a book on communication. Yeah, I did. Uh, and <laughs> uh, as somebody who could absolutely work on his communication just in general with everybody across the world, um, I would love to hear about the book itself. So it's like, uh, can you give us a bit of the synopsis of the book? Yeah, definitely. So it's called The Conversation Guide. Um, and the first half of the book lays out 10 skills about having conversations, how to prepare for them how to have them, how to end them, and what to do after maybe. So these aren't just everyday conversations. These are the the hard ones, the ones we like to avoid, mm. or the ones that escalate. Uh, so I, I've, I kind of thought about the book because of clients coming to me with, I know I need to have this conversation. I know I need to set boundaries. I know I need to tell this person this or that, but they just, they don't know how. They they've gotten that far, but then there's, they feel like they don't have the skills and they're not confident to handle what might happen in that situation. So instead they avoid it and they don't say anything or they do what they've done before, which leads to the same result, Mm. which is usually an argument or conflict of some sort, or just not achieving their goals. So I kind of came up with these, these skills, which I laid out in the first part of the book uh, to give people like a recipe, some sort of structure. And of course, they're the boss. They're, they know themselves and the person that they're communicating with the best. So they get to choose what ingredients they use and how they phrase things. But this at least provided some sort of tangible structure for them, which it seems like people really, really needed. It's like actually what to say to start a conversation out on the right foot. Mm not to just dive in and rip off the band-aid coming hot like i say that can usually get things escalated pretty quickly so you know skills like that and then 
the second half of the book is stories about actually applying the skills stories either from my own life or from friends that I have changed details and names obviously but just that show the skills kind of in action and how they're applied to specific situations like saying no is a huge one I get from people how do I say no more how I feel so bad how so how to kind of alleviate that and and so yeah first half of the book skills second half is application of the skills and sprinkled throughout is some cognitive behavior therapy Hmm. uh just kind of those mental blocks that might prevent us from doing what we feel like we need to do um so yeah that's that's basically the book in a nutshell so how do we say no to people what's the best way to go about doing it (laughs) well it really depends on the situation so knowing your with the thing with boundaries and so saying no is a boundary and if this is something that is coming up consistently I often suggest to people time and place is one of the skills, choosing a good time and place. A lot of the time in the moment is not a good time to have a boundary setting conversation. Mm -hmm. So if something's happening consistently, have a conversation about addressing that theme of, okay, you ask me for a lot of last minute favors type of thing, right? Maybe there's that, that friend who's always like, oh yeah, tomorrow, can you, I need you to pick me up from the airport or like help me with this wedding thing. Um, so, you know, it can it can feel really overwhelming when that's constantly weighing on a relationship. So if, if that's the case and that's something someone wants to change in a specific relationship, then addressing that out of the moment. Talking about, you know, being on the same team is a, one of the skills mm. that I talk about to start a conversation. So, you know, we we both we both want your wedding to be great, you know starting out like hey remember we're in a relationship for a reason we're having this conversation for a reason we have the same goals so that can be a really great way to start a conversation Mm -hmm. and then doing things like validating them like this is really stressful for you and you really need someone to help you do this last minute favor and then describing unfortunately i can't do that for you but then here's where we use skills in boundary setting to alleviate that guilt that's going to come up is offering alternatives to people. So when you're setting a boundary, you're essentially taking something away from someone. Either you can't do this something for them, you don't want them to talk about something, you don't want them to touch you in a certain way. You there's things that they're doing that you don't want them to do or or say anymore. So I call it in the book, I call it Indiana Jonesing. <laughs> if you've ever seen, I think it's Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark where he's in the tomb and there's the treasure on the pedestal and the pedestal knows the weight of the treasure and he looks at it and he takes a bag of sand in his hand and and he kind of weighs the bag of sand. Yeah. And then he swaps them out really quickly. So this is what we need to do in setting boundaries. If you're taking something away from someone, give them something of equal weight in return. So, Hey, I can't do that last minute favor for you, but you know what I'm going to do? I'll help you phone your family members and find someone who can, or you know what? I can help you with this other thing that you asked me for instead. And that can help both people feel a lot better, can alleviate the guilt of the person saying no. And it can also help the other person not feel so just stranded, right? And that something's been taken away from them that maybe this person doesn't even care type of thing. And so I go into this in a lot more detail in the book, but I think that's a really important part of boundary setting and especially saying no that I see come up. And so saying no is hard and it's 
probably always going to be hard, but some tips in the book to hopefully help it be less hard that people are, again, more confident to do that in the moment and think about align on the same team as them, validate them, set the boundary, give alternatives. And so that would be a way that I would, I would suggest saying no, a rough framework. Great. Thanks. Do you, do you find couples have a harder time kind of skillfully communicating with each other or is it, are you finding that it's more with their peers or people that, you know, they may not have a closer relationship? I'm sure it depends and there's nuances, but generally do you, can you see any sort of trends with that? Yeah, I think I see couples as well as individuals. And what's great about seeing couples is that they both learn these skills Mm. at the same time. And so they're both kind of speaking the same language and they both, they both really want to work on the relationship. Whereas when I see individuals, a lot of the time it's teaching these skills and it can be very one-sided where, and we address that where it can feel, and I address this in the book, it can feel like you're doing all the heavy lifting. And why should I be the one setting these boundaries? The other person should just know this, like they're the one being a jerk. Why am I the one having to relearn how to communicate and to try and to try and live a more peaceful life and have a better relationship? And so it it comes up in all sorts of relationships. But yeah, if people, you know, I suggest at the beginning of the book as well, if people read it together and learn the skills together, I think that can just help it feel a lot more kind of reciprocal and a lot more even where it's like, now we're both speaking the same language. Mm. We both know the same kind of style of communicating uh, rather than kind of feeling like, oh man, I'm the one doing all the work here and this person doesn't change at all. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I and mean, when when my wife and I started couples counseling, like we've been together for years and years, but you'd be surprised like in that first couple of sessions, we realized that we didn't, sometimes we were just talking right past each other, right? And we were just learning yeah. the basic ways of understanding what each of us was saying. Because when you're with somebody for so long, you, you know, you rush to judgment on, on thoughts, you, you make assumptions, all kinds of things. And it's harder to check yourself than when you're talking to somebody who you may not have a relationship with for so long. But if I had just been doing that therapy on my own and, and putting in the work to figure out how to communicate better with my partner and my partner wasn't, it would feel Mm -hmm. a lot more difficult to be able to connect. And I, then I'd feel definitely you know, you never know, you feel resentful or, or, or you feel mm-hmm. like that person's neglecting you or whatever. And so that's a, that's a really good encouragement, I think, that you make in your book that probably if you're, if you're working with a partner on this, you probably should read it together. Yeah, I think that that would be really great. And it's, it's fun to do things like this as a couple as well, right? And, and just kind of learn new things and, and ways of, of communicating. But yeah, as far as the individuals, though, too, it's, it's still very valuable to them, even though, yeah, it can feel like they're doing all the work. It's reminding yourself of your motivation that even though you might be doing a lot of work, you will hopefully see the payout in a more peaceful Mm. relationship and just better communication, feeling more understood, having your boundaries respected, all of those great things. And so hopefully, even if it's just the one person doing it, they can still have the motivation to be like, you know what, this is a lot of work, but it's going to be worth it. How, how key is it? And, and obviously this is a part of your a key part of your book and you've already mentioned a few times, but being understood by somebody like, yeah, I'm sure you just can't 
understate or undersell that because um, it just seems like it's such a critical piece of the whole conversation. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of communication breakdowns come from. As you said, a lot of the time, I call it defensive realities. People are are arguing more about whose perspective is Mm. right rather than getting to the underlying issues, which Mm. is usually someone's feelings are hurt. And so when we want to have someone understand us, rather than imposing our reality on them, imposing our perspective, hey, things are this way, you did this, this is what's happening, cut under that into I'm feeling hurt, I'm feeling really lonely, I'm feeling confused. Then your teammate will hear that and they will automatically want to help you because they care about you and you're on the same team. You said, hey, we both love each other. We want to have a, a great relationship. But lately I've, I've been feeling hurt. And so that's such a more invitation to them being, oh my gosh, why? Mm-hmm. Or what can I do to help? Rather than, hey, you know what? You've been doing this lately. Or this has been happening. Mm-hmm. Well, in their reality, that might not be the case. And so they might, I'm not doing that. That's not happening. Well, now we're just going to argue about whether that's happening or not. And that's, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> it wastes a lot of time. And usually we can't change people's minds either. So the way people see things is the way people see things, right? And, you know, why can't we do this at a more societal level, right? Like you think about how polarized things yeah. are in so many issues. Like if we could just spend a little bit of time to understand really what that person's feeling or their lived experiences on something, how much more, you know, mm-hmm. how much more would we feel like we're actually teammates, right? As opposed to just, yeah. you know, saying, okay, you need to hear me at all costs, but I, you know, I'm not going to listen to you because what you're telling me, that doesn't matter. I need, you need to hear me first. Like that approach is mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's so toxic, right? Yeah, it's definitely can be very imposing and just invites defense mm-hmm. rather than, communication and yeah we just kind of get caught up in in our realities and our perspectives are are so valuable to us and we will protect them at all costs and so the way we see things and the way we feel like we're behaving and the way we interpret the world if someone has a different interpretation we will definitely defend ourselves to them and tell them they are wrong um one of the examples i use in the book is one, I've heard a few other uh, people in psychology use as well, that old meme from, I think, 2011, the dress where mm. some people see it as black and mm. blue and some people see it as gold and white. It's the same picture, but people see it very differently. And I've actually gotten some of the students at school, I say, okay, who sees it as this color? Who sees it as that color? Okay, convince them to see it the way you do. And they're not going Mm -hmm. to, right? There's nothing you could say to be like, yeah, but, and you you saw on Twitter and that's what made it so great is that people were just fighting tooth and nail. Are you crazy? Like, you know, calling each other names and, and just couldn't believe it. And that's exactly what happens in these so many communication breakdowns I see is just people arguing what color the dress is when it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You're both right. So what's underneath that? 
that's what the issue is. That's what needs attending to. And it's, you know, not to be too much of a counselor about it, but it is usually people's feelings, right? And, and so if we can be vulnerable and we can become more emotionally aware, that will just draw people in and form those connections and get to the root of problems where we can actually solve them. And then we can move on and not have the same argument over and over again. Yeah. Very cool. Um, you had mentioned CBT a couple of minutes ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit and sort of its role in helping people deal with their cognitive distortions. Totally. Yeah. I love CBT. I've been, uh, yeah, using it the, for the whole time I've been in, in private practice. And, uh, yeah, I find it really helpful because it, I, maybe it's the teacher in me. It really helps teach people kind of to be their own therapist. That's one of the, the things about CBT that I really like and being aware of our thoughts and that, you know, we have a situation, the, the one I use in the book and the one I use with my clients all the time is being stuck in traffic. And, okay, we have this situation and then we have a reaction. Maybe someone's angry. Maybe they're yelling at other drivers. Maybe they're feeling really tense. And a lot of the times we're like, oh, this person's angry because they're stuck in traffic. But if the situation causes the reaction, well, anytime anyone's stuck in traffic, they'd have that same reaction but we know that's not the case. So there's some other variable there that we're missing. And that's what CBT brings is we're not actually reacting to situations. We're reacting to our thoughts about the situations. We're reacting to our interpretation. That person stuck in traffic is probably thinking those other drivers don't respect them. They're probably thinking they're an idiot for not getting their life together to leave on time. They're probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in trouble at work yet again. So if someone were stuck in traffic and they're like, oh, well, I have time to call my best friend, Scarlett, chat with her on the phone, or, you know, I get to listen to my favorite song. Alkaline Trio. Probably going to have a very, yeah, of course, <laughs> uh, maybe some Taylor Swift, but they're probably going to have a really different reaction. So again, we see the same situation, different reaction. And this is where I love CBT. It comes in is that not all of our thoughts are true. And so we're often not aware of what's going on in our head. The rules our brains have made to make sense of our present and to, to predict our future. And that's what our brains are trying to do all the time. And we have all these rules and we have all these beliefs. And so sometimes though, our brain's doing the best it can, but sometimes it gives us some garbage. It gives us some untrue thoughts. And if we're not aware of that, We'll just act on them. Like the thought of these people on the road don't respect me. How true is that? Maybe this person's had a, a lifetime of feeling disrespected by other people. So that's going to be their first automatic thought mm. that they have. But if they really take time to think, hang on a minute. Is that true? Or are these people just trying to get in front of anyone? Yeah, maybe they don't respect anyone on the road. But me personally, they don't know me personally. Do I need to feel angry towards them then? And so challenging these thoughts is a big part of CBT. And yeah, I really love that because it can help people realize, oh yeah, I have some negative beliefs or I have some negative uh, beliefs about myself that I'm using to make sense of the world that are causing these reactions that I want to change. So if I can be aware of my thoughts and I can replace the untrue ones with more true ones, 
then my reactions will change as a result. So when it comes to communication, definitely interpreting what our communication partner is saying, what our own urges are to jump in and defend ourselves, all of these things CBT can be applied to. And uh, yeah, yeah, I find it really helpful for clients. Yeah, great. And I should have said in the question, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were there, are there other, because I looked on your website, you do EMDR as well, I think. Yeah. I, I just, I just yeah. learned about that. That seems, how does it, what's that stand for again? It's like eye movement, eye movement desensitization okay. and reprocessing. Yeah, I, I read that too. I have no idea what it is. Can you sort of explain that? Sure. EMDR is the, CBT and EMDR are the two main ones that I use. Um, so EMDR was originally solely a trauma method uh, made, discovered, made by uh, this lady, Francine Shapiro, and for war veterans. And she apparently came to the magic of EMDR. She was thinking about something distressing and she was going for a walk and she was moving her eyes. And then she noticed it just wasn't that distressing anymore. And she thought, hmm, there must be something to the way I was moving my eyes. And she made this whole process it's emdr is an eight phase process the first couple are like history taking client intake those things preparing the client finding different target memories of traumas then phase four is actually processing so that's usually what people want to hear about it seems very strange but can be very effective you hold a, a distressing image or memory in your mind and use what we call bilateral stimulation which is moving your eyes back and forth, either like left, right, or tapping left, right on your legs. And now there are other things to do as well. Um, and that desensitizes those eye movements and other tasks, desensitize the emotional charge of that memory. So maybe it came in, it was, you know, a car accident, let's say eight out of 10. If I think about that, oh my gosh, I just, I'm feel really powerless. And so we can hopefully desensitize that emotion, desensitize that negative belief of feeling I'm powerless, and then reprocess that and, ins and install a belief of I survived or I'm safe. And so, so the EMDR can be extremely helpful for people who have experienced traumas, capital T traumas like that, but now it's being applied to lowercase t traumas. I use it with people with like depression, anxiety, and what's really cool is using it for anxiety disorders, OCD, phobias, things where we're mm -hmm. worried about the future, and we use the feared future, what's the worst case future you can imagine, and we use that almost as if it's a memory, because we can picture it in our heads, can picture being attacked by a shark. So okay, process that, desensitize that, maybe not so afraid of going swimming in the ocean anymore. So EMDR is, there's tons of research. There's a lot of amazing researchers in Holland right now, actually, which funnily enough is where I lived in Europe. Um, get to watch a bunch of really cool professional development events with um, these great Dutch uh, researchers and therapists, and they've come up with EMDR 2.0, which is just another theory of, of how EMDR works because we've seen it work. We can see that it desensitizes the emotional charge off of trauma and the original theory as to why was something with the bilateral movement, mm -hmm. the back and forth, left, right, left, right. But now we're, the new theory is it's called 
the taxation of the working memory. And it's basically that we are taking our memories from our long term. We're saying, okay, think of this memory. It's going up into your working memory. And then we tax that with now people are getting people to like sing songs, do math, like spell their names backwards, all sorts of things while moving their eyes, while doing tapping. We're just taxing their brain. And then the emotional charge gets desensitized off of these quite quickly in a lot of cases. Again, I always tell my clients, no guarantees it'll work for everybody, but I've seen it work. And uh, my my EMDR uh, colleague, he, he always likes to say that the, they get the, you stole my wallet look. <laughs> like sometimes like, people are just like, what? Where did, what just, what'd you just do to me? Uh, it can be really quite quite quick and just yeah really relieving for people it's an amazing technique if people have not tried it i encourage you to go find an emdr therapist and give it a try i've i've tried it one session i I need to do more of it for for bullying issues that i had as a kid but i really want to do it for also one of my phobias that i have because i've heard it works really really well so um we used that i used the, the buzzers on either end um yeah it's it's really it's really weird kyle like it's just um, you start off with like this, this memory. Um, so I would have started off with like my earliest bullying memory and you rank it at a certain number and then you go through the session and then my therapist would just ask me, okay, well, what would you rate it as now? Right. As you, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, it's only been one session, right? So I can't really, I don't know how to respond to that, but, uh, mm. yeah, really interesting. Very interesting stuff. Very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really neat. There's so much cool research on it now. It's I I my mom cut a, an article out of the Vancouver Sun for me that Prince Harry has tried it, um, so it's good enough for him. <laughs> and uh, I heard on a podcast uh, Kelly Osborne was about to try it. She hadn't yet, but it's definitely becoming a lot more popular. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are some really amazing EMDR therapists out there. Very, very yeah. cool. I wanna I wanna. We're getting to close to an hour, and I also I do want to talk about just the book writing process because you know this is sure. this is your first book. <laughs> yep. Um, what was that like? Because I mean, just to get started, <laughs> I, I you know, I how many words? Like... So Sorry, it ended up being about. No, it's okay. That's a that's a good question, and you know what? Embarrassingly, I don't think I have the final word count. I'd have to go or check, pages, but it's around sorry. sixty thousand. It's 300 pages. <laughs> yeah. God. 300 pages is a lot of pages. Yeah. So, I mean, what was strange is I never set out to be an author. I wasn't like, I'm going to write a book. What should I write a book about? As I kind of mentioned before, I just saw the need in so many clients so consistently. And I'd kind of developed more and more these skills that I found I just saw working so well for people individuals, couples just coming back and being like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful to just like, people want to be told what to do, but also given the freedom to, to make it their own. And I feel like it was just the right amounts of both of those things. And so I was like, you know what? I got to write these down. So So you're writing those down as you're like, as you're dealing with clients or, or in the, in the few months prior. Yeah. I was Mm. kind of, you know, just because I'd, I'd just been taking notes about like, oh, this step really worked. And, oh, put this one before this just to help other clients. And be like, oh, yeah, start mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a great way to start a conversation or a great way to end it. Or, oh, you know, 
little tips and things. So I'd be kind of squirreling those away just for my own usage. And then it kind of just in the spring, I, I thought, yeah, I should flesh these out and, and make a book about them because I think it could be really helpful. Like we were talking about before, a lot of people cannot afford therapy. They can hopefully afford a $17 book. I don't know how, yeah, I think it's about that much uh, for the paperback. It's $9.99 for the Kindle version. And so hopefully people can read that and learn some of these skills that I'm teaching my clients in, in our sessions. And it's just a lot more accessible to some of these these self-help things, right? So yeah, I I started writing and I took maybe about a month and a half, two months, and I had about thirty to 40,000 words, I think, by then. So it kind of just poured out of wow. me. I just kept going. It was really just like a yeah, fast and furious. It's kind of how I do things. Like I mentioned before, when Dr. Scarlett told me to, uh, oh, maybe change your diet, I did it that day. So I, that's just kind of the person that I am. So I got it out and then, then what to do? I have no idea about anything. So I read a bunch of blogs. I watched a bunch of YouTube articles and I found a site called Readsy where there's a lot of freelance book editors, um, artists, layout designers, all sorts of things, just all to do with book publishing. Mm. And so I searched some people and I started, research the types of editing that there are apparently there's more than one i had no idea like what are some types so, so the the first thing that you do is get an editorial assessment which is a very as they would say high level very zoomed out version of basically your concept of your book and the content mm -hmm. and the, the editor will give you like a page or two about their comments about the flow of the book and the content and then next level getting a little bit more detailed is the developmental edit and that's a little more fine-tuning like which sections go where mm -hmm. basic titling things like that and then after that you get into more like copy editing which is really getting into like the the nitpicky mm -hmm. which we've all maybe heard of that one a bit and then after that's the proofreading mm -hmm. so and there's a couple passes of each of those in between, right? There's some back and forth. So I was hiring some freelance people and I found this amazing lady down in California and I hired her also as a book coach so I could buy an hour of her time and just bombard her with questions about like, what do I, what do I write in the front of the book? There's all that text in the first few pages. Mm -hmm. What is that? What do I need to write? How do I reference things? What kind of, I'm, I'm used to academia mm -hmm. where we do referencing a very different way. So all sorts of things hired an artist to do the front, not only the front cover, but the interior layout of the mm. book and make it so that it can be on a Kindle and be, mm. you know, in a print book as well. And so, so many different things to think about. So it was really fun and it was actually quite similar to being in a band where you kind of go in having this creative project, but then you also need to learn about marketing and, you know, recording or whatever it is for music. And similar to a book, it's like, you know, you got to learn about editing and also marketing and, and all these other kind of bits and pieces that go into actually forming a book. So yeah, I, I definitely learned a lot. It was a, an interesting process. I invested a lot of my own time and money into it. I thought about going with a hybrid publisher, um, 
and I had a couple meetings with some, but I ultimately decided that I was almost too far into the process and had already gotten all, a lot of my own editing done um, and hired artists and everything. I, I didn't really need what they could offer me as a hybrid publisher. What's so a hybrid pub I decided, a publisher? Yeah, so they're, they have in-house editors, artists, people that they can use, and they'll help you kind of organize your book timeline, and they'll help you market it, and they'll help you with all those things. You do pay them. Um, and then they also get a cut of book sales, mm. but they will help you with your distribution and, and all those things and make sure kind of like all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Uh, so it can be a really great option for, I think, some first time authors. But uh, my book coach mentioned she felt I was organized enough and I'd I'd researched enough. Uh, again, maybe my research background coming into um, play in my favor there. But yeah, she was she said, yeah, you could probably do this on your own no problem and now that there's things like amazon i mean you could go publish a book in probably five minutes right now if you wanted to it might not mm. it might not look super pretty but you know just having that access is what a great world we live in so it's been really cool and, and to have done the process from basically starting the book to finishing it this past week is about eight months which is you know with a traditional publisher would probably take about two years what i hear so wow. defi definitely works for people who are impatient like me i was gonna ask you about so there's a book called um the war of art and it's it's this guy who's a he's an artist he's an author he wrote um the legend of bagger vance which i don't know for all you golf fans okay. out there is a will smith movie i don't know years ago so they so they take this guy's book and they, and they turn it into a movie anyways um he wrote this book called the war of art and it's all about uh he calls it the resistance, but you know, which is basically this force that stops you from creating and stops you from working, and all the things that that, that mm. like you have to do to overcome this force. And by that I mean like, it's it's like nine o'clock in the morning. I don't want to write, so I'm gonna go have coffee and like whatever golf mm -hmm. or whatever, right? Like, there's all these excuses to not do the work. And this whole point of the book is just you know just shut the fuck up and do the work. Um, mm. So I was gonna ask you. Um, um, <laughs> In this process, did you encounter the resistance and how did you overcome it? But it sounds mm -hmm. like maybe you didn't because you just wrote the thing and and um, <laughs> had it done in eight months, which sounds to me pretty impressive. So, yeah. so maybe it wasn't an issue. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. It was, like I said before, it's it's kind of my personality type to just really, once I get an idea, it's happening. Mm -hmm. But there have been resistances on the way. There have been tough times. And going back and forth with some of the editors and uh, timelines has been really tough for me reading and rereading the book and trying to remember what's changed and what what version is mm -hmm. this it can get really confusing like you can get way too close to it and it can just be really hard to read the same thing over and over and over again so there's definitely been some times where it's been tough to get myself to think, okay, you know, this editor gave me the book back. I want to get it back to them as quickly as possible. But oh, man, do I have, you know, two full days to read the book word for word. And so it, it definitely it's, it's tough, but I think since it flowed so well for when I just made the first draft that I'd already come so far that it was easy to to 
fight that resistance because I had so much momentum already. I think if that had happened earlier on, I may have not even finished. But since it was like, okay, well, the book's already like basically done. I just have to kind of like keep pushing through and pushing through and, and also trying to give myself a bit of a break with, you know, I, perfectionistic attitudes can can lead to just kind of a complete stall in projects so yeah the book is probably not perfect um I'd be surprised if it was you know did I have the time and money to afford a second proofread no did I do it myself yes did I do a really thorough job probably not (laughs) you know by then I was tired I'd read the book a million times I just I wanted it to be done So that's the thing where, you know, someone going with a hybrid publisher or a big name publisher um, or a traditional publisher would have is, you know, a a really, really polished. I've just, you know, I did the best I could. I, I funded it all myself. I did all my own time. I hired all the people myself. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, you got to have that attitude of like, I did the best I could and hopefully it's, that's, pretty good we'll see congratulations really yeah, congratulations. thank you that's that's, um, that's really incredible and uh, that that's an interesting reflection though you know even if yeah to, to reread your book like you said a thousand times like oh, you'd be so sick of it yeah so sick of it mm-hmm. and so that's something that you probably if you're doing a book for the first time you probably don't even put into the the process you know that uh, right. there's this back and forth yeah. that has to happen and and like you said, you read your book in two days, 300 pages. Like, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, again, reminded me of, you know, being in a band where you, you make a new song and you're stoked to play it. And then by you know, you're recording it, it's just like, oh, what, I hate this song. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I did synchronized swimming. And, and so we obviously have our routines to music. And could never listen to any of those songs ever again. Like I've listened to those songs just like <laughs> time and time and time after time. Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's been nice to take a bit of a break from the book. And I think once I get the, the paperback copy in my hand, I might sit down and, and flip through it and, and read the whole thing yet again, just to re-familiarize myself with sure. it. But yeah. You should just so, record your audio while you're doing that. So that way, at least you got the audio book just in case you need to do that. Totally. So you and your mic's your already, like you're set up now. You can just yeah, read the thank thing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. you're good. Um, I'd thought about doing an, an audio. And if I ever did, I would like to be the one that that reads it. But um, for time and money's sake, I was like, not yet. But also, the book is kind of a reference guide. Mm. That's why the word guide is in the title. And I thought, you know... I love audiobooks so much and I, I listen to them a lot, but um, they're really great for, you know, fiction or memoirs, mm. things like that. But this is kind of, like I said before, a bit more of a cookbook almost. It's, I want people to hopefully have it in their bag or on their bookshelf and, and take it out and flip to the page that they need. And so I'm, I think there would be value in listening to it from start to finish, but I would, I would hope that people would keep revisiting the book. There's a lot, a lot of information there. I just don't think it could all sink in with just one, one pass of it. Um, so, so yeah, we'll see if there's ever an audiobook, but maybe. So, uh, two questions, I, I can do um, where can people buy this book and two, um, if you're selling on Amazon, which I'm not sure if you are, but, um, 
Mm-hmm. So does that mean that like you hired somebody to like print your book? You have a box full of printed books at your house, and like your Amazon app goes ding, and then like you go get a book and like put an envelope <laughs> and then mail it to somebody. Like, is that how this works? Oh my gosh! Thankfully, no. Oh, <laughs> that that used to be the case where self-published authors would have to buy like a thousand of their own books and then mail them out themselves. With Amazon and the other company I'm using called Ingram Spark. They're print on demand. Uh-huh. And so they have printers set up a bunch of different places and you just upload your files and people buy the book on, on Amazon. And then Amazon just dings me the cost of the book and then dings me a little more because Amazon. Jeff, and uh, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, um, we got to see what's out there. <laughs> and like, uh, cool and then I get house. actually, you know, <laughs> like, Amazon does give a very good cut to the authors, okay. though. And hmm. that's another really great um, reason to, to choose self-publishing is that after, so the, the price of the book minus what it cost to actually print it, I get 70% of that. Hmm. So with a traditional publisher, apparently you'd be looking at about, I think, about 11 or 12%. Whoa. So pretty massive wow. difference. Um, so, so yeah, I've... I've, again, done a lot of research on this and and different people, different things work for them. Of course, publishers have way bigger reach. They have all the connections. They've got, you know, the best editors and artists and and all those things. But yeah, for for nobody like me who is just kind of publishing their their first book, it definitely is, uh, yeah, is really great. Um, So I'm okay with them dinging me that, that 30%. So so yeah, I don't have a box of books in my house, thankfully, and I'm not mailing them out to people. So people can can find it on Amazon. The Kindle version is available right now, and the paperback version should be available uh, pretty soon on Amazon. And uh, that's Amazon.com.ca all around the world, and then through Ingram Spark as well to wholesalers. If anyone is a wholesaler who's interested, they can buy it at a I think a fifty five percent discount, and then they can sell it in their stores. Okay, thank you. That's uh, you know yeah. that's uh, for all the slack that Amazon gets and probably in some cases deserves. Um, that's really good to hear, though. Like seventy percent back to the author. I would have mm-hmm. never thought that. And uh, yeah, yeah, compared to what you said about big publishers, so at least uh, you know they're still remaining true to the to how they founded their company, right? Yeah, and. As I was mentioning before, I mean, what a great platform for people who want to self-publish because it was, you know, setting aside thousands of dollars to print your own books and then mail them yourselves. Mm. And this has just really opened up a lot of opportunities for people who want to be authors. And so, yeah, I'm I'm very thankful to them, uh, despite some of the, the flack that they, they get. Uh, yeah, and I chose the 70% option. There's, a, there's one that's 35, and there's just different kind of stipulations with that. But yeah, and uh, they even have you know, since I'm Canadian, uh, different tax things I had to figure out where they don't tax Canadians, U.S. tax, because I'll be paying income tax mm. and, and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, they've kind of thought of everything. It's it's really great. They've made the process very easy. Awesome. Um, we're probably getting towards our, our final questions. Uh, but before sure. I ask you those, uh, hearkening back to your uh, marine biology days, What's your yeah. favorite marine species? <laughs> um, 
Hmm. Good question. I really liked working with the seahorses. I got to breed the seahorses, and that was always really cool. The seahorses, um, the male, carry the the babies? They have a pouch, yeah. Cute. <laughs> yeah. So so they will form mated pairs because they do need to synchronize the the eggs grow in the female and then she deposits them into the male's pouch and then he fertilizes them and while they're growing in his pouch she's able to produce more eggs mm-hmm. and so they have this kind of timing thing so they actually form kind of monogamous pairs which is kind of cute i guess um so i really enjoyed working with the seahorses i still after you know you see a seahorse and i just don't know how they're even alive they can't swim very well they just don't they look ridiculous they have to eat all day Mm. yeah they're just really strange creatures so i always really liked those and a lot of the other fish we worked with had a lot of personality like the stingrays were really cool they'd come up you know when we you feed them by hand and you get to pet them and they just shoot water at your feet until you feed them and so it was always really cool so just i love all fish but seahorses and stingrays were were pretty cool they were pretty high up on the list yeah very cool thanks for entertaining the question uh yeah joelle we're we're kind of near the end here but we always ask two questions to all of our guests before i ask that though i mean i'm curious you know you their your accident and then you know there i'm sure the eight months writing a book wasn't always there probably highs and lows but what does your just general yeah. self-care look like yeah so this is one thing that i uh I talk to my clients a lot about, so I like to try and practice what I preach. And one of my big self-care things that I've been doing lately is, um, I used to go running, then I got a dog. So now I walk the dog a lot, but while I, while I walk the dog or when I would go for a run, I don't listen to music or books or podcasts all the time. I do sometimes. I listen to my two nobodies podcasts. I actually did <laughs> like listen it. to the one like on the it. coddling of the, the American mind. Um, but sometimes I I give that time to let my mind wander. And that's something that I feel like our brains really need to do. But we're not giving our brains that we don't have the time waiting in line anymore. We don't have the time like in the car. We don't have, we're constantly being bombarded with input, input, input. And our brains, they really need to process things. Something I've learned through doing EMDR is, you know, our, our brains kind of have this magical way of, of, figuring things out if we give it time but sometimes that's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and sometimes we think about things that are are sad or frustrating or make us angry and so why not watch netflix instead why not scroll through instagram so i i force myself into kind of going through those you know just letting my brain do whatever not giving it a task its only task is to do what it wants and what it needs and if uncomfortable things do come up, that's when, again, the mindfulness, like I was talking about in CBT, just trying not to attach such strong emotions to those thoughts, challenging them, just being like, okay, that's interesting. And, and thinking things through and doing some problem solving or, or just, you know, again, yeah, letting the mind wander. I, I've talked to a, a client once I asked, when in the day are you not telling your brain what to do? And she was like, yeah, never and you can find those people are the people who have racing thoughts right before they go to bed because your brain's trying to steal that time Mm. because all day you are just telling it what to do and it's like yo i got some stuff to figure out here but you're not giving me enough time so i'm gonna do it when you're trying to sleep so 
So I love to, that's, that's my big thing with self-care is just doing stuff. Only that task, whether it's cleaning the house or walking the dog, it's just, and, and just letting my mind do its thing. Mm. And then balancing that with, yeah, sometimes some nice healthy distraction. Like I love those cheesy Netflix Christmas <laughs> movies. I've watched a bunch of them already. It's November 19th. Name a couple. So, um, love that's hard. That. That's was that not bad. Love hard. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I re- I really liked yeah. that one. Snowbound for Christmas. That one was really something. Uh, yeah. I found that one really interesting, actually. This boss was dating the second coworker. Anyway, it was... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we won't get into that, but I loved it anyway. Um, so, so, yeah, that balancing between that healthy distraction time and that deliberate processing time. And that's what I I tell my clients. And that's what I try and do to take care of myself. I, I, you know, talk to friends and and watch funny movies and and distract myself and give my brain some nice fun stuff. But then I also give it time to do what it it needs and wants and and to think things through and just think about life. Love Mm it. Yeah. Uh, I need to ask everybody what their favorite Christmas movie is. Sorry, before we go on. Love this topic. Rupesh. Um, Oh, sorry, uh, no. Yes, okay, Rupesh. No, oh, Rupesh, geez, I have Rupesh just entirely botched this. Okay, let's go to the guest first. So, Joelle, <laughs> what's your favorite Christmas movie? Um, Probably a tie between Muppet Family Christmas Carol and Home Alone. Uh, yeah, right. Well, now I don't have to answer. Uh, Pesh? <laughs> uh, planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That's a, also oh, nice. a very good one. And, uh, I mean, as a kid, Home Alone for sure. Yeah, probably those two. Yeah, yeah it's Home Alone for sure, like... With a bullet for me. Yeah. Christmas Vacation, probably second. Mm. Um, Grinch is good, too. Got to give an honorable mention. Because the I've only really seen the, like the, the, the animated the one that's like half an hour that like CBC shows. But there's a new one, yeah. right? New animated the one? The Jim Carrey one? What's that? Oh, the, not the Jim Carrey one. Is it, well, because there's one that's like live action, right? And the, is that Jim Carrey? But there's one that they just like... Like an animated one from like Pixar that came out like last year or something, isn't it? Oh, maybe. I'm not up on the throw it on your list. You got your your twos department. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Anyways, I just derailed this podcast. Any more questions you have for us, Kyle? (laughs) 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 What are stars? (laughs) Um, No, sorry. I'll shut up. All right, Uh, Joel. Our five for dinner question: Dead or alive? Who are five people that you would want to have dinner with? Uh, so I'm not a big history person at all. Um, so I thought about this and I think I'd probably want to meet up with some dead people who died mysteriously so I could get some answers. (laughs) So the one that I've always, and I've, I've, I've read some on Reddit. They're like, Oh, what's a mystery you, you wish you could solve? And no one says the Dyatlov pass incident where they found all those Russian hikers. And it was a really strange way they all died and it was just what happened i don't is know is that the one I where there, like where there were people like in the trees like yeah like, and some of them were like naked like, huge, and like, like, one of their uh, tongues was out it was really and, like strange. their tents were like ripped apart by something that looked like it had claws yeah. like like this is the the one thing when, when people are like uh if the yeti does exist he probably murdered these people like that's the but it was more str- like there's theories about like nuclear stuff oh. happening around there or like because they're just some of the the details i li- i heard one podcast about it um i don't know if it's stuff you should know potentially 
But yeah, a friend of mine was playing it on a car ride and I just thought I'd never heard of it. And it was just such a strange thing. So maybe, yeah, getting some answers from those when people. When did that happen? Seeing what right. happened. That's a good question. I've no, no not idea. Sure either, actually. I think quite a while ago. Yeah. And then maybe I'd get Kurt Cobain to play me some music while I eat dinner, <laughs> yeah. if he's into that. That's yeah, because cool. I, he had suspected Crohn's disease, I think, oh. too. So a fellow inflammatory bowel disease sufferer. So I feel like we could maybe mm. connect on yeah, that. There you go. <laughs> That'd be a good one. Yeah. Do you got do you got a few more? Anyone else that you want to bring to dinner? Oh, I I think that's probably like yeah, just unsolved mysteries <laughs> <Yeah>. probably. <laughs> but I didn't have anyone Jimmy specific Hoffa? except the Diet Love Pass. Jimmy, <laughs> sure, and like yeah, John Joan Benet Ramsey oh, yeah. is that one? And like yeah, I think I'd like to just you know honor those people and find out what really happened to them. And I think there's yeah, I mean the making of a murderer serial those like. Yeah. Yo, what happened? Yeah. Tell us. Yeah, good That's point. Yeah, yeah. Serial took over my life that first season for a little bit. Ah, too good. Do you think he did it? Oh man, we could talk. We could have a okay. whole. <laughs> we could have fifteen hours on on Adnan. Um, sure. I don't know. It went. She did such a good job in that podcast that from episode to episode, I could be convinced like firmly either mm-hmm. way. And at the end of it all, mm-hmm. I st- I still don't know. But that's the great thing with that podcast. I mean, like she clearly thinks that he didn't. And so, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. You? I can't really remember, but I think I had a theory that it was the friend Jay. I had a feeling that I think he did it. There was like, I don't know. I had this whole big theory that had no one had mentioned anything on the podcast. And I, yeah, but this was year. I remember listening to it when I was at, working for Fisheries and Oceans Canada oh, okay. on my headphones, just feeding fish, just just taken in That's cereal like episode after episode <laughs> is the theory feeding fish no no no, no. Oh, the, the theory yeah. yeah the cereal theory oh man it's probably a terrible theory they've probably already debunked it on on reddit or something yeah, <laughs> my dad was fascinated with the john yeah. ramsey case like he was just following that thing for years and then yeah he always thought the mom the mom did it but then you know yeah, yeah. have you guys read about this family this hiking family in california uh, it was a dad, a mom, and a and a young child, one years old maybe, one year old maybe, and they were found dead in the middle of a hiking trail. They have no idea what did it. They've they wow. sent uh, or sorry, uh, I they may now. The last time I googled it, which was like a week ago, they they um, they didn't know, but they thought maybe they'd like um, drank some water that had like some algae poisoning in it, oh. or they. Wow. Um, they cordoned off the area because they thought that it was maybe um, some kind of alert. No, uh, uh, I'm going to mess this up. But like some kind of poisoning in the air They or like lightning strike. They weren't wow. sure because they're, they're, they're just there. Like there's no obvious sign and a dog, all of them wow. dead, just hanging out in the trail. And Ooh. so they don't know what happened. Look into it. Uh, what's the last name? So strange. Can't remember. Just look up California hiking family and you'll see. It's insane. Yeah. Tragic. Oh Tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry for a bit of a, a morbid answer to that question, I guess. But <laughs> no, it'd be no, good to get great. some answers. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. like a answer for the common good. Yes, mm-hmm. it is actually. I agree yeah, with you. Just like let's solve some mysteries <laughs> yeah. for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Um, I think, as I said before, just as a CBT therapist, I can say for sure that not all of your thoughts are true. <laughs> 
That's a good answer. Yeah. Something to something to keep in yeah. mind. A, a little bit a of a mind reminder. bender, that one. What's that? It's a little bit of a mind bender, that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Joelle, just a pleasure to have you. Congratulations on your book. I look forward to reading Thank it. Thank you. I'm really glad that you were able to... Uh, we were the first podcast, I think, after sort yeah. of publishing the book. It's an honor for that. You ha- um, just, Thank you. Yeah, look forward to... Uh, hopefully get to know you better. We share a similar friends, Scarlett, so hopefully get to know you better. But again, just really thankful for your time today and hopefully you had some fun with us too. Yeah, this is such a blast. I had such a great time. Thank you so much, both of you. This was really fun. Great. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Joel. Yeah. Take care. Bye.